Our Bibles are open to Galatians chapter 2 this morning. We're in a study of Paul's letter to the Galatians, one of the great uh, letters of the Apostle Paul, probably the first one that he wrote, very passionate, very pointed, everything in it about the gospel of God. If you need a Bible with you, there's one in the pew rack. We'll be on page 913 in the pew Bibles this morning if you want to join along with us and We'll uh, have the scriptures up on the screens for you this morning. I'm going to talk with us for a few uh, minutes this morning about the subject persisting in the gospel ministry. You know, one of the easiest things for people to do is just quit. I heard Edgar Harrell, who was a survivor of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis back in World War II, one of the few who lived through that was here at Hillcrest just a couple, three years ago. Many of you came to hear him speak. What an encouragement he was. Uh, after several days, long period of time at sea, they were finally rescued. And he made a statement at that meeting that I've never forgotten. He said, dying is easy, but you've got to struggle to live. That's a great word about life, you know it. Because in the difficulties and pressures of everyday life that all of us experience, one of the greatest temptations that you and I ever face is the temptation to give up, <clears throat> the temptation to quit. It's kind of an appealing temptation, really, and the reason that's true is because it, by definition, is the path of least resistance. There's, there's no struggle with quitting. There, there's no confrontation, no work, no fight. All you have to do to quit is just pack your bag and walk away. And nowhere do we find the temptation to walk away more oftentimes than when it comes to the things of God. When it comes to our ministry in the gospel. And that's especially true today because we live in a world that kind of majors on cultural acceptance. And in a world, cultural acceptance always means compromising the gospel. If you want the lost world to accept you as part of their group, it usually will require that you either dilute, water down, compromise, or even walk away from the gospel altogether. And the thing that I know from Scripture and the thing I know from my personal experience as a follower of Jesus is that you can either follow Jesus or you can run with the crowd, but you cannot do both at the same time. Because Jesus made it plain. No man can serve two masters. Now, if you all were with us last week, you know that Paul in the first couple of chapters of Galatians is writing about his struggle for the gospel with those in the churches that he had founded in Galatians, and even a struggle with the false teachers who were trying to convince the people of Galatia who'd surrendered their lives to Christ that they had surrendered themselves to a false gospel and there was other things that they needed to do in order to be accepted by God. We see much of Paul's struggle in the biographical information that Paul provides for us in the first couple of chapters of Galatians. Galatians 1 and 2 is kind of what we call the personal section of Galatians because Paul tells us about himself and his life from the time of his conversion up through, you know, the first 15 or so years of his ministry. He unpacks very briefly 
But he kind of unpacks a bit of a timeline of his own personal life. And this timeline kind of revolves around two very strategic trips that the Apostle Paul made to Jerusalem. We looked at the first one last week from the end of chapter 1, a visit that occurred three years after his conversion to Jesus Christ, a visit to Jerusalem that was made fundamentally to just get to know some of the apostles. He was only there two weeks. But he wanted to meet Peter, and he wanted to meet the leader of the Jerusalem church, who of course was James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did that, but he wasn't there very long. And then here in chapter 2, Paul relays a second visit that he made to the holy city of Jerusalem. This visit was made several years later. In fact, he says after 14 years, which presumably is 14 years after his conversion, if it's to be interpreted in the same way that the after three years is interpreted in chapter 1, 14 years after his conversion. Uh, conversion, which would be 11 years later, he makes a second visit to Jerusalem, and he relays that here in the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. We're not going to read the whole passage, a lengthy passage, but we'll read a few verses to get us started. Chapter 2, verse 1, everybody ready to look at the Word of God? Say amen. Here's what it says. Then, after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed to be influential, the gospel, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, let's stop there for a moment and just reflect for a few minutes because Paul is not telling us of a second visit he made to Jerusalem 14 years after he met the Lord on that dramatic Damascus Road blinding light experience. Now, the purpose of this visit probably uh, was to deliver a famine offering, a relief offering. You can read about that in Acts chapter 11. The people in the church at Antioch where Paul and Barnabas had been serving just north of modern-day Israel, Antioch of Syria, they had become aware that there was a severe famine in the land in Jerusalem, and they made it their mission in life, this Gentile church, to demonstrate their solidarity with the predominantly Jewish church of the region of Judea by collecting for them this relief offering. And this concept of the famine had been delivered by the apostle, or to the Apostle Paul and others within the church by means of a prophetic revelation from a man named Agabus. Do you all remember that story? And that's probably what Paul's reflecting here when he says, we went up to Jerusalem by means of a revelation. It was probably the revelation of Agabus saying there's going to come a famine in the land. And it was that revelation that led them to begin collecting this relief offering that they then sent to Jerusalem by Paul and Barnabas. And so that sets a little bit of the context of what's taking place here and the reason why Paul went for a second time, the second of four trips that he himself would personally make to Jerusalem during his ministry. That was the official reason for going. But there was another reason that Paul wanted to go. It was kind of a behind-the-scenes reason. And that is Paul wants to take advantage of this opportunity while he's delivering this bag of money to the apostles there at Jerusalem 
to, as he says here, to set before them what amounts to the essential gospel he was preaching. He wants to set before them because there's a lot of controversy about Paul, whether or not he's an apostle, whether or not the gospel that he's preaching came from men or from God, whether or not the gospel was a twisted gospel to serve Paul's own ends and own purposes. And so part of what he wants to accomplish in this visit to Jerusalem is to have a meeting with these high and influential people in order to unpack the gospel to secure their agreement with it. So there be no question that the Jerusalem apostles and Paul were preaching exactly the same gospel, one that centered on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. And this was, of course, to counter these false teachers that had infiltrated Antioch and would later infiltrate Galatia, who were Jewish by nature and were teaching that the gospel was not Christ alone. It was Christ plus. Gentiles could become believers, but they had to become Jews first in order to become Christian. And you know, with all of that, it's kind of a backdrop to get us into the meat of the text this morning. What I love most about this passage is the reminder of just how tenacious Paul was about the gospel. Remember, we're talking today about persistence in the gospel ministry. Paul faced a lot of struggles and a lot of hardships, and they would only get worse the longer that he was in ministry. But he just, he, he's not a quitter. He just refuses to quit. And the refusal of Paul to quit, as he would later tell the Philippians, I press on toward the mark of the high calling of Christ, uh, or of God in Christ Jesus. What's behind that is this incredible vision that he had of the Lord. He had seen the Lord high and lifted up. We may not see the Lord quite as dramatically when we're saved, but I may just tell you this morning, if you don't have a solid vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, if you can't see that and haven't seen that in your heart, when the going gets tough, you'll be tempted to walk away from it. It's that vision of Christ, and that calling of Christ that keeps us persistent in ministry like the Apostle Paul. If we're going to do that, it requires that we be aware of three very important realities we find in this passage of Scripture about the gospel ministry that God not only gave to the Apostle Paul, but the gospel ministry that God has given to every single one of us. And let me remind us all in the room this morning, if you know the Lord Jesus, how many people here today know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Would you say amen this morning? Amen. Okay, you're a gospel minister. I'm not talking about full-time pulpiteering. I'm just talking about serving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Demonstrating your love for God by your testimony about Jesus. We're all engaged in the gospel ministry together. You got to be aware of three realities if you're going to persist and finish your race well. The first is that the gospel ministry involves struggle. Have you all experienced that in your own life? If you've never experienced struggle because of what you believe about Jesus Christ, you're probably not living very openly for Jesus Christ. Because if you're open and honest about your faith, it's usually going to take you into some arena of struggle somewhere along the way. And that's clearly reflected here beginning in verse number four. Check it out. Yet because of false brothers 
secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, you should know by now one of the distinguishing marks of Paul's letter to the Galatians is its very direct tone. In fact, if you're a very direct person, that's probably what's attractive to you about this. This is a guy that tells it like it is. This is a guy that's not afraid of anybody. This is a guy that just will not shut up with respect to the gospel. We see Paul at his most direct in the letter to the Galatians. And the reason, of course, that he comes across so forcefully is because he's concerned about these people that he's led to Christ. He's concerned about them in the infancy and the immaturity of their faith. He's concerned about them buying in to the smooth talk and the smooth ways, the sophistication of these false teachers whose message basically was, as indicated in Acts 15:1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot what? Be saved. In other words, it's impossible for you to be saved. Unless you're circumcised, and every male in the audience went, what are you talking about, brother? I mean, he had their attention really quickly here. And they sounded very convincing. These were men that raised in Judaism. They knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. But Paul knew them for what they really were. And he kind of calls them out. They're spiritual slave traders. They want to rob believers of the freedom that Christ died to provide them and bring them back again, not according to my words, but according to Paul's, bring them back again into a condition of what? Slavery. That's right. And Paul knew this is not the gospel. This is not freedom. It's bondage. And he knew it had to be confronted and it had to be stopped because there is nothing liberating about a salvation that's based on works. That's the greatest kind of bondage. If it depends on you or me, we're in a lot of trouble for a lot of the reasons that we've already talked about. We can never measure up to the righteousness of God. It's a fool's errand. Your best goodness doesn't even get that close to the holiness of God. Your very best is worthless, filthy rags unto God. Now, following Jesus generally means a life, as we've talked about before, generally following Jesus means a life of gentleness and a life of kindness and a life of courtesy. Everybody agree with me? Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Christianity is basically a life of non-retaliation, but not when it comes to matters of truth. Man, when truth is on the line, that's not an excuse to act unchristlike, by the way. This is not an excuse to engage in bare-knuckle brawling, even over matters of truth. You still need to look like Jesus. Can I have an amen this morning? You never not look like Christ. But Paul serves as an effective model for this, I think. So you don't lose your Christ-likeness when you're forced to confront error. But here's the thing. We must confront error. We must confront it. Sometimes we have to do it delicately because we don't want to turn people off to the gospel. We're always to be peaceable, always look for ways to reconcile, but we must confront error. This is the whole point of the first two chapters of Galatians. When truth is on the line, the reason that's true is because when truth is on the line, so is the eternal destiny of human beings. 
If we get the truth wrong, people go to hell. And so we got to major on truth. And when truth is compromised, we have to be willing to stand up and confront that. Sometimes we just have to amp things up a little bit in our struggle to preserve the truth of the gospel because Paul did it. And Paul serves as a great exemplar for those of us who follow him in Christian ministry as well. Several years ago when Judy and I were ministering in another state, a woman from our church had dropped by our house to bring us something that she baked for us. We were living in the parsonage at the time, right, right on the church property. Can I have an amen this morning? I mean, we had pop in people all the time. Some of them we knew, some of them we didn't know. Some of them were just getting out of jail. That'll bless your life. And they needed transportation. They needed to get somewhere. So we, we encountered all kinds of things. I could write a book about seven years in a parsonage. We had a lovely lady came by. She was a personal friend of ours, very spiritual person. Man, she knew the word backwards and forwards, generally a very soft-spoken person. She was not very big, maybe 100 pounds soaking wet. And we were visiting. She brought us something that she'd baked for us, and we were standing in the kitchen. It was a Saturday morning, and we were standing in the kitchen, which was just right around the corner from my front door. And so we're standing there in the kitchen, and we're visiting with her for a few minutes, and I'm wanting to cut in, you know, what she brought to me, and I'm ooing and aahing over it, and we're just having a nice visit. Judy's in the room. Kids are running around the house. And next thing I know, the doorbell rang. And I excused myself and walked just right around the corner and opened the door and began to have a conversation with two Jehovah's Witnesses that showed up at my door. And after two or three minutes with them, I hear this, Are those Jehovah's Witnesses? And the next thing I know, that screen door was flying open and she was busting past me and she got right down in front of them and she began to give them what for. I'd never seen this side of this person. This was a sweetheart of a lady. She was tearing them up, rebuking them for the false gospel that they were proclaiming and accusing them of leading people straight to hell. Every word of that was true, by the way. But I didn't see that coming. I mean, I'm standing there bug-eyed, thinking, what in the world is going on? And then we walked back in the house, and she was all flushed and red-faced, began to apologize to us. And I said, oh, no, you, you did me a favor. I didn't have to even open my mouth, girl. <laughs> then she began to say, some 10, 15 years earlier, her mother was duped by Jehovah's Witnesses and was led astray into that cult, never to return to the true gospel again. So a false gospel was very personal to her. But you know what? We may not have a story like that, but the gospel that saved our lives ought to be personal to us as well. And when people go messing around with it, it ought to create a righteous indignation in your spirit that wants to confront it. Never not looking like, uh, like Jesus in the process. And she may have gone over the top a little bit. I mean, they got out of there like she'd come out of there with a shot-off shotgun. But we see pretty much that here in Paul. We've seen it in some of the languages. I mean, he pronounces a curse on people that mess up the gospel. Verse 5, to them, to these false brethren 
we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be what? Preserved for you. But notice the definite article, the truth of the gospel. How many truths are there? One. How many gospels are there? Only one truth centered in the one who claimed to be the truth, whose name is Jesus Christ, not a truth. The gospel is the truth, and it's the truth about Jesus Christ, what Jesus had in mind when he said, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. That's right. Only one Christ, only one cross, only one gospel, only one truth, and the truth that alone sets a person free from the law of sin and death is a truth that not only should be preached, it's a truth that must also be defended by the very people of God whose lives have been changed by it. It's what Paul told Timothy he must do. 1 Timothy 6 and 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Circle the word thee. The King James Bible doesn't get it right here. It's not fight the good fight of faith, it's fight the good fight of the faith. Because there is only one faith, and it's the gospel faith. Know the truth, fight for the faith. And let me just say this morning, this is a very important principle for our day and time today when people want to define their own individual truth. Some of y'all may have sat out and watched that two-hour interview that Oprah did with uh, Harry and Megan. I don't know why you would have watched that for two hours. I watched the first few minutes of it, and I'm thinking, this is like a soap opera. And Oprah looked at her and said, now, I just want to kind of make you comfortable as you begin to tell us your truth. And that's when I was done. Your truth, I don't care about her truth. I want to know what the facts are. I want to know the truth. Your truth may not be the truth. It's not about your truth. I cannot stand that concept today, and it's all over the world. Your truth is your truth. It may not be my truth. No, the truth is the truth. There's only one truth. And the church is under great pressure today to modify its message and mold its message. And we're often under hostility because what we proclaim, we proclaim as absolute truth without variation of any kind. One thing we can never do is yield to the pressure. We can never surrender the crucial message of the gospel of grace that eternity and life with God hinges on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Would you not agree with me this morning? The gospel is, involves struggle, and the gospel is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. And if you don't realize that and embrace that, it'll be hard for you to persist in the ministry of the gospel. A second reality is that the gospel ministry requires acceptance. Acceptance. Not of opinions, not of alternative truths. The gospel ministry requires acceptance of all kinds of people. This is a primary reason, I think, why Paul took Titus along with him. Do you notice that? This trip to Jerusalem 14 years after the salvation of Paul was Paul, Barnabas, and who? Titus. That's right. Why'd they take him along? He was just a young guy, maybe still a teenager at the time. 
Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be what? Circumcised. Now remember, they're going into the heart of Jerusalem. They're going into the mother church, which is fundamentally a Jewish church there at the First Baptist of Jerusalem. And they're taking a thoroughgoing, uncircumcised Gentile through the beautiful columns into the sanctuary to meet with the apostles who had been with Jesus. Not even Titus was forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul took him along for a very strategic reason. He was emphasizing a critical point about the gospel, namely that the gospel is for all people. Would you say amen to that this morning? The gospel is for Jews. The gospel is for Gentiles. And both Jew and Gentile are accepted by God. And both Jew and Gentile are accepted by God on exactly the same terms, namely by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. No additives, no preservatives necessary. Now, those who read the Bible closely might sense something of an inconsistency here because you know there's also a story in the Bible where Paul took another young man on as an associate in ministry whose name was what? Timothy. Timothy. And what did Paul have Timothy experience? Circumcision. And many people read that and they think, well, wait a minute, that seems like an inconsistency to me because Paul picks up Timothy, takes him along, and the first thing he does is he has Timothy circumcised. But then Paul takes Titus on and he says, you know what, I ain't yielding for a moment, not even for a nanosecond, no circumcision for this man. So what's the difference between the two? Well, the cases are totally different. The reason that Paul had Timothy circumcised was because how would Timothy have been perceived by most people in the community? He would have been perceived as a Jew. He had a Gentile father, but his mother was what? His mother was Jewish. Well, if your mama's Jewish, that makes you Jew as well. And Paul knew their custom. He was taking Timothy along as a ministry associate, so impressed was he by Timothy And they knew that part of their custom was to hit the synagogues first. Paul was a Jew, and he went to the Jews first. So I'm going to be taking this guy that's born of a Jewish mother, but has never been circumcised before because he tended to live more like his Greek father than his Jewish mother. So he'd never been circumcised. And Paul thought, well, that won't do because Timothy's considered a Jew, and if I take him into the, I can't take him into the synagogues if he's uncircumcised. And so Paul has Timothy circumcised, not as a condition of his salvation. Timothy was saved. Had Timothy fallen to the ground dead of heart block before Paul had gotten around to circumcising him, he would have still gone straight to heaven because Timothy had trusted Jesus Christ by faith to save him. No, Paul has Timothy circumcised simply as a matter of military, of military. ministry. Sometimes it's like being in the military. Ministry strategy, ministry strategy. He didn't want anything to inhibit Timothy's ministry either to Gentiles who wouldn't have cared whether or not he was circumcised or to Jews who would have cared deeply that he as a Jewish man had never been circumcised. Does that make sense? 
So it has nothing to do with salvation. But the case with Titus is totally different. There's not a drop of Jewish blood coursing through Titus' veins. He's not a Jew. He's a Greek. Thoroughgoing. And yet he came to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the apostle Paul and his preaching. And Paul says, well, there's, he's a Greek. He's not a Jew. There's no reason for this man to be circumcised, particularly in response to the drumbeat coming from these false teachers that are declaring now that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul takes Titus along to Jerusalem kind of as a test case. He's going to present him to these apostles and he's going to say, now let's talk about the gospel that we're all preaching to make sure that we're all on the same page. Because I got false teachers up there. They're preaching that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And I want to make sure that you Jewish uh, converts Apostles are preaching the same gospel that I'm preaching, so there's no inconsistency whatsoever. So he pushes Titus right in front of these pillars in Jerusalem. And he says to the apostles, what say all y'all? And they said, not a thing else is required. If this man as a Greek, as a thoroughgoing Gentile has trusted Christ, he needn't be circumcised. No additional matter is necessary. And that was just huge for Paul. And let me just say this morning, this kind of thing is still a perennial danger. The issue is not going to be circumcision. Nobody's ever going to demand anybody at Hillcrest be circumcised in order to be saved. But for over 2,000 years, believers, man, I'm just saying, we've all had this tendency to add things to the gospel as conditions for salvation. And sometimes it's subliminal. Sometimes we do it without even thinking about doing it. And the reason that we do it, remember from the very first message, the reason we do it is because we're all recovering legalists. I'm a recovering legalist. You are a recovering Pharisee. We're all trying to get over this scoring system as a way to earn points or to curry favor with God. We're all big on rules whether we say that or not. We just want somebody to tell me what to do. Tell me the boxes to check. But there's only one rule with respect to salvation. You know what the one rule with respect to salvation is? Are y'all still with me? Say amen this morning. Give me the one rule. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. That's the rule right there. That's the only one you really have to remember. And what this means practically for us is that we are bound by faith to accept all kinds of people within the community of faith. Because Jesus died for all kinds of people. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And there ought not be any second-class citizens in the local church of the Lord Jesus Christ either. Because every believer is saved exactly the same way. By faith, in Christ alone, plus nothing else. And this is why there can be and should never be any discrimination in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not discriminate according to race. We do not discriminate according to ethnic heritage. We do not discriminate according to sex. We do not discriminate according to social or economic status. We don't even discriminate according to matters of personal opinion with which we may disagree. And we can vocalize the disagreement, but we don't kick people to the curb because of it. 
If there's no difference in our standing before God, there should be no difference in our standing with one another. If God accepts us just as we are without one plea, but that his blood was shed for me, then we ought to accept one another according to the measure of our simple faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so the gospel involves struggle. The gospel encourages personal acceptance of others. And then finally this morning, we learned that the gospel ministry encourages partnership. Partnership. We need each other to do a worldwide work of taking the gospel to men and women. And you can see that here beginning in verse number 6. Paul says, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and when James and Cephas, Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, influential, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, that is, principally to the Jews. Now, this statement here kind of reveals a couple of very important outcomes of this Jerusalem visit, this second visit to Jerusalem by Paul. And there are a couple of things worth noting here. First, Paul says that these influential apostles in Jerusalem added nothing to me. That's a key phrase. In other words, they they didn't look at Paul after he said, now, in, in our work in Antioch and wherever else God may send me, here's what I'm preaching about Jesus Christ. Now, tell me I'm wrong. And these apostles looked at Paul and said, ain't nothing wrong with that gospel. No, that's the same gospel that we're preaching here. And so they affirmed the gospel that he was preaching. They agreed on the heart of the gospel. They didn't make any attempt to add anything to it. Not circumcision, not temple worship, not Sabbath observance, not a code of conduct. The gospel was all Christ and all cross. Now, Paul didn't receive his gospel from these men. He had been accused of it, but it was very important to him to have what he was preaching validated by them because that would enable Paul eventually to go to these Galatians as he's doing in this letter right here and say, here's the thing. I unpacked my gospel completely before these men and they accepted it 100%. And what that would mean for this context here is that Paul's gospel was right and the gospel of those false preachers was totally corrupted and was not to be listened to. This was critical. But then a second outcome of the meeting was not only the affirmation of Paul's gospel, but it's in verse 9. The Jerusalem leaders gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Paul. Right hand of fellowship. That's a gesture of partnership that basically says, guys, we know we're not together, but we're together. We're in this together. We can't reach the Roman world by trying just to do our own thing. We've got to cooperate and we've got to collaborate. And this is part of what I love about being a Southern Baptist. 
Because we engage with some 40 plus thousand other churches to accomplish worldwide mission and worldwide evangelization. There's about 2,500 active of us here at Hillcrest. There's almost 8 billion people in the world. I don't even know how to count to 8 billion people, much less reach 8 billion people from Nine Mile and Gotti, unless we cooperate with others in order to get the job done. And so we give the right hand of fellowship to others. All conditioned, of course, on our unity in the gospel. We cannot partner with people. We cannot partner with people that we are not in agreement about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But where there is agreement about the word of God and where there is agreement about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I don't care what's on the shingle out in front of the building. We can partner together to make a difference in this world for Christ if we're agreed on the gospel. And this is what Paul ensured was the case by this trip to Jerusalem. Now, they were charged with two different arenas, and Paul makes that clear. Paul understood his calling, even as a Jewish man, to take the gospel to the Roman world. And you can read the book of Acts and see how he did that. It's an amazing series of stories. But he felt like God had called him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Jerusalem church, right there in the heart of Judea, right there in the heart of Jewish country, felt compelled that the primacy of their ministry should be to Jews. And there's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean that those guys never preached to the Gentiles in Jerusalem. They surely did. In fact, Peter, who was charged here with taking the gospel to the circumcised was the first one that God ever used to take the gospel into a Gentile's house, Cornelius, in Acts 10 and 11. Yes, they went to the Jews, but their primary, I mean to the Gentile, but their primary calling in Jerusalem was to the Jews. Paul's primary calling was to the Gentiles. But did Paul ever preach the gospel to Jews? All day long. In fact, it was the first thing he did. Whenever he went into a new town, he would go to the synagogue first because he knew how those people thought. So there's overlap there. But there's just a different emphasis in terms of ministry. And that's the case here. I feel compelled to preach the gospel to Floridians fundamentally. God's placed me here to do that. Others will be compelled to preach it and to minister it in Colorado or Georgia or Massachusetts, wherever the Lord may take them. Some may be compelled to go to places like El Salvador or Russia or Spain or to the United Kingdom, countless other places, to minister the gospel to people groups far and wide. How many of y'all have heard missionaries say, God has called us to take the gospel to the Russian people? Well, they'll preach the gospel to anybody that'll listen, but their principal calling is to take the gospel to that particular people group. And churches ought to learn the value of partnership wherever there's gospel unity. Because I'm just saying, the world's too big and time is too short to go it alone. Hillcrest has a long history of doing that. We have a long history, one that we're very thankful for, of training men and women in the gospel and then raising them up and sending them out to mission fields around the world. Sometimes they'll stay for a whole career. 
Sometimes they'll serve for a season, but the message is still the same. We are unified around the gospel, and when we send somebody out, we're saying we are sending you out as a ministry partner with the gospel of Christ, and you can count on this body of Christ to be there for you, to support, to encourage, and to pray for you along the way because we're all in this gospel ministry together. Man, that kind of partnership is critical if you're going to persist in ministry because you can't live in an island as a minister of the gospel. We're reminded and need to be reminded that we're not in it alone. We need the Lord. We need the Spirit of God. But we need each other too. That makes sense this morning? Persistence in ministry. Never give up. Never quit. But recognize The gospel involves struggle. The gospel requires acceptance of all kinds of people. The gospel encourages partnership together in ministry. The philosophy of the world has been for a long time. If you don't like the way things are, just pack your bags and give it up. Walk away. But God's word says persist. Press on. Fight the good fight of the faith. Never give up. Do not yield even for a moment. And the question this morning, with all of that in mind, is how committed am I to the ministry of the gospel in my church, in my community, in my state, and in my world? This is the word of God and all God's people said.